All right, church, if you would take your seat. My name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if you are new with us, want to welcome you uh, to our community this Sunday to be a part of worshiping Jesus with us. We are glad that you are here. Uh, church family, as we have been uh, going in a season of vision, we had our three days of prayer and fasting this past week that ended with a Wednesday night prayer and worship time as we seek the Lord uh, for the beginning of this school year. It was awesome. I mean, we, we, we met in the lobby and we filled that place out and it was just, it was hot, but it was rocking. It was great. And so just thank you to everyone who took part in the fast, took part to pray, took part to come up and worship. I'm excited as we head into the fall together. Uh, like I said, we are in a time of vision. Uh, in the spring in January, we talked vision about who we are, that as the declaration declared that we are sons and daughters, that's who we, who we, where we want to live from, that we want to live as people whose primary identity is known by how the Father loves us and known by the inheritance that he has for us, that that's where we would live from, that we're sons and daughters who encounter Jesus, that we want a living and active relationship with him because we believe he's the bread of life. And so we want to live a life of knowing him, remembering that he is the initiator and we are the responder. He has initiated for us to come and to know him and to enjoy him and to live life with him. And we want to practice his ways. We want to look like Jesus. We want our character to be like him. We want our values to be like him. We want to be like Jesus. We want to practice his ways and we want to build his kingdom. Everyone's going to build somebody's kingdom in your lifetime. You can build the kingdom of yourself. You can build the kingdom of the school that you work for or went to or the kingdom of a, a brand that you work for or whatever. We want to be people that while we may go to school or may work or may just live in a neighborhood, we want to be people who build Jesus' kingdom. It's a kingdom of life. It's a kingdom where people flourish. And we want to build that kingdom here in our nation, in, the, in our city, in the nation, in the nations of the earth. That's who we are. Now we're talking about where are we going? Where is the Holy Spirit calling us to grow? Where is he calling us to go? And we've been looking at a series of parables, a series of teachings of Jesus in Luke 15 that highlight what I believe the Lord is calling us into or where he's leading us in this new school year. It's under the banner, prepare the feast. And one question someone had is on the graphic, it's only vegetables. So are we going vegan? Is that what the message is? No, we still have other items that need to be prepared. Hence, prepare the feast. So there you go. We're going to be in Luke 15, verse 11 through 32. Uh, in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to pull out your phone, pull out your Bible, uh, turn there. It's something powerful when we read and take in the Word of God for ourselves. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is one underneath the seat in front of you that you can grab and you can use. Uh, we're going to be on page 849 in that Bible, Luke 15, 11 through 32. This is one of Jesus' most famous teachings. It's one of the most well-known, well-loved. It has influenced uh, so many different people from Rembrandt, the painter, to Shakespeare, the writer, to other writers like Herman Melville and Mark Twain, on down to the Rolling Stones. It's had a wide range of impact. This story has captured hearts and minds for generations. And we're going to read it today uh, and just see the goodness of God on display as we read it. Starting in verse 11, Jesus continued. Remember, he's told two parables already, the lost sheep, 
the lost coin. We went over those last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those on the podcast. And he starts, and he says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And the younger son longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven And against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, The older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But the older brother answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even give me a, you've never even given me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. So I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The father responds, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What an amazing story. What a beautiful story. I want to take you through it, kind of each part together as we learn to see what it would have meant in Jesus' day, what's going on here, and how it applies to your life and mine uh, in our day. So starting in verse 11, Jesus opens up telling a story, right? And there are three characters in this story. There's the father, there's the older son, and there's the younger son. Three main characters. Interestingly enough, Dr. Michael Parsons, who's one of the leading world scholars on the Gospel of Luke, says if you look through this teaching, this parable, and you count the number of times the word father is repeated... It's repeated over and over and over again. And in Jesus' day, repetition was a a rhetorical device, was a way of speaking and teaching to point out where the emphasis was. 
So Parson says for Jesus' original hearers, those that were gathered around him on that day, they would have all understood that though this was a story about two sons, the main character was the father. The main one on display was the father. If this story was up for an Oscar, it'd be the father up for the leading role and the sons as supporting actors. So our attention is to be on him. And the younger son comes to his dad and he says, hey, dad, uh, I want you to give me my share of the estate. I want you to give me essentially my inheritance. Now, if you're the dad, what are you thinking at this point? You're thinking, wait, what? Essentially, your son has just come to you and said, hey, dad, uh, I actually wish you would go ahead and die so I could just have your stuff, right? The younger son, what he's asking, he said, dad, I want your stuff. I don't want you. I want your presents, like the kind you get at Christmas. I want your presents, but I don't want your presence. I want my inheritance. Give it to me now. If you were the father, man, this would have had to have taken you aback. For Jesus' original hearers, they lived in a culture where children were to honor their parents. And as their parents aged, children were to take care of their parents. It was a high honor culture. And so for a rebellious son to do something like this, in Jesus' day, the natural response, what everyone listening to him would have expected, would be for the father to disown the son right then and there. To say, you are dead to me. You are not a part of this family anymore. You wanted me dead, you're the one that's dead. That would have been what was normal. In fact, even for rebellious sons, uh, they could sometimes face capital punishment for their rebellion against their parents. That's how big a deal this was. So for Jesus' hearers, they're thinking, okay, of course, the father is going to come down on the son. He's going to say no. He's going to put him in his place. And yet, as we've seen all summer long, over and over and over again, uh, the main character here, the father, responds so differently. And as we see his response, we see the heart of God on display. The father divides the property between the sons. This would have required him as an estate owner. It wouldn't have been liquidating a bank account or, or a stock, uh, you know, a, a, a stock shares or whatever. It would have been taking the family land that had been what the father ha- had most likely inherited from his parents and going off and selling a third of it to give his son the inheritance. That would have been a significant cost a significant loss to this generational thing that had been in their family. So he does that, and then in verse 13, if you'll look, we see what the son's motivation was. We see what was really going on. It wasn't just about, hey, I just want my inheritance now. But the son uh, takes together all he has, and he sets off for a distant country. And there he squanders his wealth and wild living. And so when the son receives his inheritance, you also see what's in his heart. You see, he's believing that the good life, that the best things in life, that the life that he wants to live is not found in the father's house. That it is not found in the father's presence. 
that it is not found near the Father, but it's found somewhere out there. It's not found in the Father's love. It's found in someone else's love. It's not found in the Father's presence. It's found in someone else's presence. That's where the good life is. And so he sets out and he departs and he squanders all his wealth in pursuit of that dream, in pursuit of that promise that was out there. In verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Now, interestingly enough, uh, researchers have studied how do people from different cultures read and relate to this story. And they studied Americans, and when Americans who read this story were asked to describe the, the, the younger son's main sin, what was his main problem? You know what we said? Vast majority. You know what we said? We said, well, he spent his money in a dumb way. That's what Americans said was like he squandered his wealth. That's, that's, the, the, that's where he erred. When they ask people from different cultures, particularly Eastern Europe, they read the story entirely differently. They're like, the younger son, his main problem was that he thought he could just do life on his own and he cut himself off from his family and he tried to go it alone. And a famine hit him just like it hits everyone else and it broke him because there was no one there for him. And that's what happens when you try and do life on his own. So his main sin was rejecting the father. That's where he erred. It's really interesting to hear how different people read that and receive that. But you get the idea of what's going on. This dream that he was pursuing, this good life that he thought was out there, if he would chase it, if he would only go, if he would only buy into it, if he would only give himself to it, what in the end he got, it left him broke. It left him hungry. It left him in a disgusting spot feeding pigs. And it left him alone. And that's what sin does to us. Sin is the belief that the good life, the best life, the best things in life are not found in the Father's presence near him, but they're found somewhere out there. They're not found in the Father's love. It's found in some other love. It's not found in the Father's nearness. It's found in some other thing. And what happens time after time after time, the effects of sin are the same. It leaves us bankrupt. It leaves us broken. It leaves us alone. It leaves us naked. It takes everything we have. Sin unravels you from the inside out. That little belief that he had that, man, if I could just go over there and just have that, as innocent as it sounds at first glance, was like pulling a thread on a sweater and watching it unravel. And the sun is unraveling before us. So he hires himself out. He starts working for a man who uh, has a pig farm. Uh, in their day, uh, that was about the lowest job you could have. The worst job you could have. The most disgusting job you could have. And that's the only job that he could get. You wouldn't take that job if you had other offers. He's doing that. He's hungry, so hungry he wants to eat the slop. They're feeding the pigs, and no one gave him anything. So Jesus hangs it right there. Again, this is where the younger son is. So he comes to his senses, comes up with a plan. He's like, hey, in my father's house, though there's a famine in the land, 
I know that there's food in my father's house. I'm not worthy to be a son, but I'll, I'll go back to him. I'll kind of, maybe I can get hired on as an employee. That becomes his plan, and so he sets out. And I love this. If you'll look in verse 20, I want you to read this along with me because each phrase right here is packed with meaning. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around his son, and he kissed his son. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now notice in verse 20, it says, While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. The only time that you see people that are a long way off is if you're looking for them. This wasn't that the son kind of returned home, snuck up on dad and said, hey, dad, I got an idea. It wasn't that. The son is far off, and the father has been looking for him. The father was generous and gave the son his resources and gave the son freedom. He let him make his path in life. But he's looking for him. And he's hoping that one day he'll return and he sees his son off in the distance. This is so important. Imagine the son, right? You're coming back to your hometown. You're coming back to your family. You're coming back where everyone knows your business and they know that you basically embarrassed your family, took your money, and went kind of thinking you could make a name for yourself in the world somewhere. And now you're coming back with no money, with clothes that are, that are obviously disgusting, like the father clothes him, right? He's obviously got these clothes on. If he couldn't afford food, he definitely couldn't afford nice, clean clothes. So he's coming back dirty. He's lost his sandals because we see the father gives him his sandals. Just think about how broken he must have been. And now he's going to have to walk through his hometown in front of the eyes of all, on the way to his father's house. Don't you know there's going to be some gossip about this man? Don't you know there's going to be some people snickering, pointing, telling kids, like, don't be like that guy? Don't you know that everyone is going to see his shame? And that's what makes what happens next so amazing. In their day... Wealthy men did not run because to run, it meant you had to bare your legs. And if you bared your legs, that was kind of an embarrassing part of the body to show. So it was shameful for wealthy men who did not have to, to run. And yet that's what the father does. And please make sure that you, you see this. The son is facing his shame being publicly exposed to all. The father sees what's going on and willingly runs and takes on the shame. The shame that his son deserved, that the father definitely doesn't deserve, the father takes it on. The father embarrasses himself by running in order to cover his son's shame. And then the father, I want you to note each of the clothing items that he brings. He brings. 
He says, bring the best robe and put it on him. So whereas sin stripped him of his clothing, the father restored him. The best robe in the house would have been the father's very own robe. So the father is giving the son not just a robe, but the best robe in the house, in the estate, his very own. He's clothing him with honor. His shame is now not going to be evident to all because as he returns through the hometown, people are going to see him dressed really well. He's going to be covered. The father gives him a ring. Uh, many scholars believe this is a signet ring that would be a sign of the authority of the father. And in giving it to the son, he's reinstating the son's authority and position and honor that when people see the son wearing that ring, they will associate him with the father and they will give him honor. When the son earned dishonor, the father is giving honor that covers him and restores him. And makes him new. And then my favorite little item here, small little detail, the sandals. In their day, if you were a free man and you did not wear sandals, people said you had lost your humanity. Because it either meant you had no money and you couldn't even afford to buy sandals for your feet. Or that you had gone crazy and you just didn't even care about those things. And so I want you to see what's going on here, what Jesus is doing in telling the story. When the father gives the son his sandals, when he puts sandals on his feet, the son, who out of his own choices and his own sin, has lost his humanity. The father is restoring it. The father is, in a sense, making him human again. He's restoring his humanity and then he calls to kill the fattened calf. And, and in their day, you would throw a party, uh, you would kill meat or cut meat based on how many people were coming to a party. So a fattened calf would feed 200 people. So this party is not a small little intimate family gathering. This is a celebration for many. That's how the father feels about his son. So I'm be asking, well, what's his motive? Why is the father doing this? Is he trying to not embarrass his family anymore in front of the city? Or is he trying to make a passive-aggressive statement to the son where he's doing all this stuff but then throwing in comments about, told you so, you know you're a failure, right? Just the passive-aggressive stuff that can sometimes happen in families. What's he doing? Well, we see in the very beginning part, it tells you what his motive is. It's not because he's trying to save face. It's not because he's trying to prove a point. It's because the father was filled with compassion for the son. That's his motive. His motive is compassion for his son who has returned. Now, for everyone listening, everyone hearing, they would have been shocked dumbfounded in awe of what is going on. This would have been a story unlike any other story that they would be familiar with. And I want to point out to you, as we read here about the Father, this is who God is. God is like this Father. He's generous. He's self-sacrificial. He gives freedom. 
He covers our shame with honor. He, when we have sinned and we've blown everything, he restores us. He doesn't say, now you're going to have to work seven years to pay it off. The father just lavishes love and grace and honor on the son. And that's how God treats you and treats me. Church, this is who God is. I know it's just a normal Sunday in August. Just we're, It's a little warm in this building, but I don't want you to miss this moment. This is who God is. This is what God is like. This is what is true about you and the way that Jesus feels and thinks and moves towards you. Wow. It's a blow away. And then the Father throws this incredible celebration, this incredible, lavish feast for his son who was lost and is now found, who was dead and is now alive. Beautiful picture. But it's not the end of the story. Act two happens. And let's go there. We read uh, not about the younger son now, but we read about the older son. So we find out uh, in verse 24, meanwhile, uh, 25 rather, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music, he heard the dancing, he heard the party, right? So he called to one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. And his servant tells him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. What would the older brother do? Would he go in and would he celebrate with his brother returning? Would he, would he enter in to the feast? No, he becomes angry and he refuses to go in. Now, maybe he's angry, we think. Maybe he's angry because he's afraid that the son is going to come back. He's going to take advantage of his dad again. And maybe dad's always getting taken advantage of and he's too soft. And, he, you know, the son's just going to come back and just do it all over again. Maybe that's why we think he might be angry. Or maybe there's other motives. We find out, really, that the motive is, is a lot more um, dark than that. We see when his father goes out to him in verse 29, he responds like this. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now, again, put yourself in the dad's shoes. Here's this son who works in the business that you built on the estate that you own. And is now saying to you, you haven't done anything for me. If that happened in my house, I mean, I might get a little upset. And I imagine you would too if you were that father. And we see the main thing that the son is upset about is not because he feels like his dad's going to be taken advantage of. He's upset because he doesn't feel like his dad has given him a young goat to go celebrate with his friends. Now, this is important that you don't miss. The younger son valued the father's presence, like you get at Christmas, without the father's presence. He wanted his father's stuff. He didn't want his father. And the way that played out in his life is that he went off to the far country. The older brother actually has the exact same thing going on in his heart. The exact same thing. What he wants and what he's mad about is that he's not had the father's stuff, the father's young goat, 
so that he could go off and celebrate, not with the father, but with his friends off there. The behavior looked very different, but the heart condition was the same. The older brother was near in proximity, but distant in reality. He's there on the land, but he's not in the house. And he's disrespecting his father. And again, the original hearers would have gotten so upset at this rebellious son. And what do we see the father do? I love this. I want to make sure that you see this. Where where the father went out to the younger son, he ran to him. We see here, the father didn't send a servant to go plead with his older son. The father didn't ignore him. The father went out for him too. The father went out to him too and pleaded with him too. It's the same pursuing God. God's in pursuit of his sons and his daughters. And he goes to him, and he's pleading with him, and the son, you know, argues with him, and this is what the father says. He says, you're dead to me? No, he says, my son. Think about it, just determine your, my son. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father speaks tenderly to him. He tells him, everything I have is actually already yours. It's there for you. You're always with me. We need to celebrate this one who's come back. And then we're left with a question that we've seen so many times in these parables. What happens next? Does the older brother go in? Is the family reunited? What happens? We don't know. And that's part of the power of the story is it's meant to bring up the question in our minds. And whereas in the first parable of Jesus and the lost sheep, uh, you know, there's one in a hundred that gets lost. In the second parable of the lost coins, there's one in ten that gets lost. You can hear those and you still think, well, yeah, that's for someone out there. In the last story, it's two out of two who got lost and two out of two who are invited in. And so for the teachers and the, and the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who are sitting with Jesus, right, this is the question that's posed to them. They've been looking at the tax collectors and sinners. They've been looking at the younger brothers who Jesus is spending time with, and they're offended then now Jesus is telling this story with the question, did the older brother enter into the feast in the father's house? Will the Pharisees and the tax collectors, will they enter in? We don't know the answer. We don't know how they responded. And the question comes to us 2,000 years later, will you and I, will we enter in? Will we enter into the feast in the Father's house? Will we enter in into the grace of God? Or will we continue to live with hearts that desire the Father's presence, but not his presence? That desire his stuff and think the good life is found somewhere out there, not in our relationship with him and in his house and in his family. I'm hopeful that we're going to enter in. I'm hopeful that we're going to come in to the feast and come into the Father's house once again. 
And what I love about our church is when we talk about stories like these, that the, the heartbeat of our church is like, yes and amen. This is so awesome about Jesus. We, we love these stories. And I love that about you. I love that about you. And where I believe the Lord is calling us to grow is not just in valuing this message, but in embodying it. Not just in caring about this and being like, yes, I love Jesus, but actually letting this be the mission that gives meaning to our lives. Because Jesus is telling this to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, not just so that they would understand him, not just so they would enter into the house, but he wants them to enter into the mission as well. He's saying, this is what my kingdom is like. My kingdom is a kingdom that's pursuing ones who are lost and bringing them home. That's pursuing ones who are dead and bringing them to life. And I want you to enter into my mission. He wants us to be a part of the people of God, a passion that beats in our hearts and is embodied in our lives. So that's why we're going through this school year, 2019 into 2020, we're going through as a church a spiritual growth initiative that I believe the Holy Spirit is leading us in, that I would love to invite you to be a part, called Prepare the Feast for the City. And last week I began to unpack this a little bit, but the idea of the feast. We see it over and over and over again in these parables, and it's so symbolic of Jesus and him transforming lives. And each one of us as the church, we've been given spiritual gifts, talents, strengths, that when they come together and are used together, when your gift of teaching and your gift of mercy and, and her gift of prophecy and this person's gift of leadership, when they come together, it's a feast a spiritual feast where the grace of God is put on tangible display. And we want to be that type of church. We want to we come together with the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And we want to use them on mission together. Not just for the members of our church, although I deeply care about you, but for our city Last week I shared with you that the quote, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Let that sink in. And I sat with that last week and kind of unpacked that. I, I want to take a different angle on it today related to this initiative. And, and that's this. We're wanting to see everyone in the church, calls Antioch Dallas, your church home, we want to see you know your spiritual gifts. We want to see you join a serve team, so to partner with other believers. We have serve teams throughout our church to be on mission together to prepare a feast for the city. So we want to invite you into. And I was thinking for myself about how does this idea of spiritual gifts and serving, how has it impacted my life? And I was thinking back a number of years ago, uh, there was this season where I sensed the Holy Spirit putting on my heart that he was calling me to grow in the area of evangelism, in the area of talking to people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. And it wasn't because I'd taken some test and I kind of scored good at that. It wasn't that. It was just like in worship, in times of prayer, just one of those things where it was like, man, I just feel prompted 
by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a huge prompt. It wasn't like an eye-opening vision, but it was, it was real, and it was sincere, and I just, man. And so there was a serve team at my church uh, that they would meet. They were like a street team. They would meet on like Tuesday nights. They would get together. They'd worship. They'd share a testimony, and then they'd go out in our city and just share with whoever they met about Jesus. So I said, okay, I am not good at this. Actually, I don't like this at all. But I just kept feeling prompted. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to join this team. I'm just going to show up. I'm going to try and do this. So I would go, and I would dread Tuesday's coming. I would be like, man, maybe I can get sick today. Maybe I can pull a hammy before going to the deal. Like I just, it, it was so stretching to me. Have you ever felt stretched by something that you sense God's calling you into? Yeah, it's just so stretching. And then we'd go out, and I'd just be so intimidated. So I'd look for the oldest, sweetest grandmother that I was sure wouldn't get mad at me. And that's who I'd try and talk to for so long. But something happened, not the first week, not the first month, not even the first semester. But over time, this thing that the Holy Spirit was doing within me that I was beginning to serve alongside other believers, it began to cultivate this from just a little seed, just a little, like, little seed. And I found this passion and desire and even a gift in the area of evangelism growing in my life. And I look back on that 20 years later, and I realize some of my highest moments in life, some of my best memories are times when I've been sharing the gospel with people that don't know Jesus. It's been the thing that gives me the greatest joy. Like if you were to ask, hey, when do you feel most alive? That, that's what I would say. And not because I'm like this great evangelist. It's not like I'm trying to like uh, look at me. What I'm trying to say is in t- responding to the Holy Spirit, in partnering with other believers, what I encountered was great joy. What I encountered was great purpose. What I encountered was something that I'm like, this is the best thing in life. This is what I want to do the rest of my life, is talk to people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't jumped in on a serve team. I wouldn't have found that out if I hadn't responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't have found that out if I'd have quit after the first day because it's not fun. But it was like, man, I just kept sensing the Lord saying, come on. I want to grow you. I'm not calling you to be fruitful. I'm not calling you to be flashy. I'm calling you to be faithful. So just take a step. Take a step. Take a step. And again, the change didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in a week. It didn't happen in a month. This is a slow growth, but it's a real growth. And it has been one of the greatest blessings in my life. And I realize your gift may not be evangelism. That's fine. I believe that the Holy Spirit has something for you. It may be serving. It may be giving. It may be teaching. It may be mercy. It may be in the prophetic. It may be in creativity. It may be all these things. And what I want to challenge you today is to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Where is he prompting you to take a step, to take this thing that he's doing in your life and calling you to partner with other believers, not just for your own fulfillment, but for the sake of others. And as you do, church, I just tell you, over time, 
This will become such a great place of joy and fulfillment and meaning in your life. It starts with duty. It starts with discipline. Okay, I'm going to go. I may not feel like it. And then it grows into delight. So how are we uh, going to take steps? Uh, Here's what I would like to suggest. Uh, If you are new to our church you're like, I'm new, but, but man, I love this. This is the kind of community I want to be a part of. Or if you've been here a while and you're like, I don't really know my gifts. If we start talking about that, I'm just not sure. Or if you've been here a while and you've never joined a serve team, your next step is a class called Planted. Uh, it's actually happening right now, so you missed this month, but it'll happen again in September. And it's a class where we focus on getting connected to community. We focus on how to grow in God, how to grow in our relationship with him. And we learn about our spiritual gifts and begin to use those on mission with Jesus. So whatever your gifts are, you're new, you want to get connected, I want to encourage you to text in to 970 text the word planted. And that will register you or you'll get a link to register for the class. Now, if you missed last week, uh, we did move into the year 2019 as a church and adopted texting as a way to respond. So you can pull out your phone. You can text that in. It doesn't need the dash. You can just put 97,000 and text in planted, and you'll get a link to sign up for the next class. That may be your step today. Don't not listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and let it pass you by. You may have already been serving on a team And you're like, man, I just feel like I want to grow. I'm hungry to grow. I'm hungry to see my gifts grow. I want to encourage you to sign up for Antioch Discipleship School. We're enrolling right now. It's going to start in September. It's a uh, a once-a-week, three-hour deal on Sunday evenings. I lead it along with some other staff members, and it's awesome. And we focus on growing as sons and daughters. We focus on encountering Jesus, practicing, practicing his ways, and building his kingdom. And if you've been serving and you're kind of looking for to, to level up or take a challenge, you're sensing the Lord calling you to more, I want to encourage you to sign up. This fall, we're doing the first part, which we call the School of Transformation. It's a semester long. In January, in February, we'll start the second part, which is the School of Ministry, and that'll enroll in January. And then we'll do an international mission trip. But you can get started just, just right now. Just text in the word DSchool to 97,000, D-School to 97,000. And then last one, you're serving, you've completed the discipleship school, and you're wanting more. You're just like, man, I've been investing this way. I want to grow. I want to use my gifts. I want to glorify God. I want to do this. Then I want to encourage you to to become a pillar. What a pillar is, just like our physical church building is held up by these large pillars, our church as a community is built around so many of the spiritual mothers and fathers in our church who are old or young, but they just, they're pillars in the house. And they make space for so many in our church, and they make space for so many in our city. And if that's a step of leadership, you sense that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to take a step in. I want to encourage you to text, call me pillar to 97,000. Call me pillar to 97,000. I'm excited about this. Are you guys excited about this? Are you guys excited about what's in store as we respond to the Lord and we embody this mission and we prepare the feast for the city? Man, I'm so excited. I want us now to uh, go to God together. 
Because I don't want this just to be like we're just going through the motions and doing, the pastor said to do this, whatever. I want this to be something that the Holy Spirit stirs in our hearts, just like we sang, stir a passion in my heart. So I want to invite you to stand. We are going to go to God together by taking communion. As we take communion, we remember Christ's body that was broken for us. We remember his blood that was poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. We remember that he has invited us into his feast that this prodigal son story or older brother story, or you might be both in the same day, this, feast is, this, this story is your story, and it's my story. And we respond to his grace again. And I want to encourage you as you come to be asking the Lord to speak to you about what step, what part do you have to play as we go into the fall. I'm going to pray for us, and then the officiants will be up here, and you can come when you're ready. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you are like this father in the story. Thank you that you are generous and you are compassionate. You are kind and you celebrate people. And you're on a mission to see lost things found, dead things made alive. And you've brought us into that. We've been the recipients of that. And you're calling us to go out in that spirit and to embody your mission and let it be the meaning that shapes our lives, Lord. So we ask for your grace to be able to do that, that we would respond not with flashiness, not necessarily with fruitfulness that's in your hands, but we respond with faithfulness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can come forward when you're ready.
let's declare this together this morning, just in line with what Zach has been sharing. Let's make this our declaration that every eye will see, every heart will know there's no name above the name of Jesus. You're the king and you're the center of it all. 